1945, the United States government made 500,000 Purple Heart medals. And we haven't run out of them yet. Literally. If you were given a Purple Heart, one of these medals that are awarded for receiving a valorous wound in combat, as a member of the United States military, if you've received a Purple Heart, you probably got one that was made during World War II. Uh, 9,000 of them were made around 2,000. Not because we ran out of Purple Hearts, but because we had given them out to so many hospitals and different organizations, Central Command didn't have any for themselves to use. Now, the reason we made 500,000 Purple Hearts during World War II was because we were preparing for an awful lot of casualties towards the end of that war. You see, we were preparing for a little thing called Operation Downfall, the complete invasion of the Japanese home islands. This was going to be a god-awful mess for the good old United States of America. It was going to be horrifically bloody. We were looking at somewhere between 500,000 and 4 million American casualties, including somewhere between 100 and 800,000 American fatalities, that's deaths, in that invasion. To put that in perspective, the rest of the war, the entire thing, the whole downfall of Nazi Germany, the island-hopping campaign to get the Japanese out of the rest of the Pacific, resulted in a little over one million casualties, with about 405,000 deaths. And it wasn't just the Americans that were going to get their butts kicked by this either, it was the Japanese too. The Japanese fought to the last goddamn man in that war. When we took Iwo Jima, there were about 22,000 Japanese on that island. 21,844 died either from fighting or committing suicide to avoid being captured. That's tough. The War Department estimated there was going to be 200,000 Japanese deaths to 4 million Japanese deaths. Not casualties. Deaths. Untold horror for the rest of the island. With combined civilian and military casualties for the Japanese potentially reaching as high as 5 to 10 million deaths. This is unthinkable. Horrifying. But luckily, we had a way to stop this horror. It was by causing more horror. You see, America's brilliant idea to stop this horrifying invasion was to use a secret weapon we had been developing in the desert in the southwest called the atomic bomb. Oh boy. I'm going to need more gin. This is the show. There will soon be an end to this cold and wicked war When those hard-headed communists get what they're looking for Only one thing that will stop them and their atrocious fun If General MacArthur drops an atomic bomb Welcome to Republican in Exile, a half-hour exercise in self-torture, where I, your hard-to-admire and easy-to-anger host, attempts to sort through another week of mental fecal matter that explodes out of the political system like a parade ground porta potty filled with fireworks. If you are irritated by the way my peas pop, I'm working on it. I'm Matthew Hedge, and this week we're going over a myriad of noxious events and disheartening developments that have left me oh so frustrated and caused me to drink heavily. This week, I'm consuming a classic gin and tonic. Hendrix gin, tonic, limes, more Hendrix gin. It's, uh, it's a good day. 
The song you are currently valiantly attempting to ignore in the background is When They Drop the Atomic Bomb by Jackie Dahl and his Pickled Peppers. It's a song written shortly after the beginning of uh, the Korean War about how this whole thing is just going to be over as soon as we nuke more people. Uh, I really encourage all of you to go out and listen to this song because it's great. If General MacArthur drops a atomic bomb. Really, go out and listen to this whole thing. It, it's spectacular. If this is your first time listening, I was once a loyal member of the Republican Party, and then Donald Trump got elected president, and I started to hate everything and everyone, but especially him, the jerk. All right, maybe that's overselling it. There are some things I still love. America, apple pie, baseball, mom, dad, sister, grandma, my nephew, who's very, very cute, the city of New York, the 1985 comedy movie Clue, those little rainbow cookies they sell in Italian bakeries. And that's it. End of list. Because I cannot lend my support to Donald Trump's policies or person or thoughts or continued existence as our president, I was forced to re-register as a Democrat, something that I hate just as much as I hate Donald Trump. Uh, Somehow it all works out. Yeah. We're going to start off, as always, with this week's horrors, a rundown of all the things that I hated this week, capping off with this week's outrage, the thing I hated the absolute most, and then we'll move into some good news and finish off with me giving you a prediction of this coming week's events. But once again, as always, I warn you, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, so I've been wrong before. So let's start with this week's horrors. Shortly after I recorded last week's episode complaining about the president's Twitter usage, The president one-upped himself, retweeting a video from an anti-Semitic racist uh, on Reddit that showed him body-slamming a figure representing CNN. How would this individual on Reddit get footage that could be repurposed to show the president physically attacking CNN? Well, of course, our president has appeared on the WWE's SmackDown on more than one occasion. Are you all happy now? Are you? In the aftermath of this, CNN's crack political team tracked down the user, who refers to himself online as Han Asshole Solo, which, by the way, come up with a better name, guy. That's just lazy. I'm not the first person to point this out, but Han Asshole is right there. The pun writes itself. It's, uh, it's shoddy worksmanship. Since Han Asshole Solo's work online has mostly been about pointing out which CNN members are Jewish, uh, using the N-word prolifically, and being an all-around awful human being, getting a call from CNN was enough to panic this person into apologizing for everything, deleting his account, and I assume hiding under a comfortable blanket, waiting for mommy to make the monsters go away. And then CNN did something mildly creepy. They decided they weren't going to publish this individual's identity because he had apologized, he repented, and he promised he would never do anything like this again. However, CNN did, quote, reserve the right to publish his identity should any of that change. That sounds a little bit like extortion. And now I'm torn. On the one hand, this person's awful. 
and they wrote down an awful lot of terrible stuff which was easily traced back to them. When I was a kid, my mother told me that the Kennedy brothers never wrote anything down. That if they were going to have a conversation that was sensitive, they had it in person so that there were no records. This should give you an interesting view both into the Kennedys, into legal procedure, and into, well, my relationship with my family. On the other hand, CNN is essentially saying that they're going to hold this person's life uh, under a sword of Damocles, waiting to see if they do something that CNN finds morally repugnant again. And if they do get on CNN's bad side, they'll release their name. And since this person is an awful racist, releasing their name will ruin their life. It's complicated. But don't worry, folks. The alt-right has made it very, very clear. A group of alt-right intellectuals and clever thinkers have decided they're going to start threatening to murder the CNN reporter who discovered the identity. Donald Trump Jr., somehow the dumber of the two adult Trump boys, has made this whole situation worse by sending out messages that CNN is threatening to expose an innocent 15-year-old who didn't know any better. CNN has countered that Han Asshole Solo is middle-aged and probably should know better, but that really hasn't stopped anything. After all, when have facts mattered to a member of the Trump family? Moving on, Chris Christie. (laughs) Oh, Chris Christie, you delightful little imp. Governor Christie is still in a budget standoff with the members of the New Jersey State Legislature, which has resulted in the closure of every beach owned by the state. Chris Christie decided that, well, no one else can be on the beach. I might as well be. Here's the thing I sympathize with Governor Christie. I, too, hate the beach and everyone on it. But I don't close them down. So, better person than Chris Christie. Yay! The thing that really made me angry about this, of course, was the thing that made everyone angry. Chris Christie's representatives claiming the governor wasn't on the beach. And then claiming that it was, quote-unquote, gotcha journalism to show pictures of him on a beach he claimed he wasn't on it just shows to goya that trumpism is spreading in our political system like a malignant tumor except uh it's gonna be much harder to surgically remove this from our system the signs of trumpism are obvious step one lie step two deny that you have lied step three attack the media for pointing out that you've lied At least back in the old days, politicians were honest enough to admit they lied when they were caught lying. Now, uh, everything's out the window. New York City police officer Miyasotis Familia was murdered by an individual whose name I will not utter here because he is unimportant and thankfully very, very dead. Officer Familia was killed by a convicted felon who, in the weeks previous, had been attempting to seek mental help. How the hell are convicted felons who are actively seeking assistance for mental health issues capable of getting their hands on a gun? Can we uh, can we deal with that, please, before I have to spend, I don't know, the rest of my life uh, banging my head against a wall? Thanks! The state of Illinois took its tentative first steps towards not being a third world nation and slumping into a junk bond credit rating status, by approving a $5 billion tax increase. Now, I don't like tax increases, but sometimes they actually are necessary. This is one of the things that used to drive me crazy about the Republicans. I want a balanced budget. In order to balance a budget, you cannot simply slash, slash, slash the budget 
until there's nothing left and then hope that somehow people figure out where to send their kids to school and what hospitals are open. If you're really interested in fiscal conservatism and balancing that budget and making sure the government does not spend more than it takes in, you can't just cut spending. You also have to take in more money. It would be like a family trying to get out of debt saying, well, everybody, we we need to spend less and also I'm going to take a demotion at work just to help us out. The first-term Republican governor of the state did attempt to veto that tax increase, claiming that he wanted more reforms, and I am sympathetic to that. One of his proposals is actually something that's been a bugaboo of mine for many, many years. Governor Bruce Rauner wanted the power to eliminate local governments that had become useless. Now, I know what you're saying. Local government is good. You like having input, blah, 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 freedom, democracy, whatever. The United States of America has 89 thousand local governments. Each one has their own budget, their own election procedures. They cost us billions of dollars a year. Illinois has more local governments than any other state, almost 7,000 of them that cost the state millions and millions and millions of dollars. Anytime you elect a person, you have to give them a salary and you have to give them some sort of power and you have to let them control taxes and spending and programs. From school boards to community boards to local councils, these organizations work on things on a very small level, and the local governments do like themselves. It doesn't mean they're a good investment for that individual state or for the country at large. These governments uh, typically aren't all that necessary. An article has been circulating online lately from Vox.com arguing that Bernie Sanders is the obvious frontrunner for the Democratic nomination in 2020. Well, I hope you guys are ready for eight years of Donald Trump instead of just four, and for me to hurl myself in front of an oncoming six train. Bernie Sanders, Bernie goddamn Sanders as the Democratic nominee in 2020. Are you all stupid? Are you high? I know that's a possibility. I've seen you people. Let's all jump from the guy that the Russians helped elect president to the other guy the Russians wanted to elect president. It'll be a wonderful choice. An old white septuagenarian from the outer boroughs versus an old white septuagenarian from the outer boroughs. Anyone else, please. John Tester, Angus King, Amy Klobuchar, Claire McCaskill, Sherrod Brown, Deval Patrick, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Christine Gillibrand, Chris Murphy, Cory Booker again. Any other Democrat, really. (laughs) So long as they've served in public office for a full term. I'll take them. Not Bernie Sanders. Please don't do this to me. I just got into this organization. And that entitles me to tell you what to do. Moving on. It's that time in the program where we check in with our sponsors. So... Listen to these wonderful messages from the people paying me, and uh, we'll be back in a moment. No, you're you're not wrong. There there are still no sponsors. This is this is the time when I drink. Oh, it's gonna get worse. This brings us to our outrage of the week. Huzzah! And as you might guess, based on what's going on right now, it's the Trump administration's foreign policy. That is this week's outrage. The president is in Europe, which on one hand means that he's not in America, which is very exciting for me. On the other hand, it means that he's in Europe, 
which is terribly unexciting for everyone else. The last time Donald Trump went to Europe, he pulled us out of the Paris Accords, he irritated every ally we had, he made the Germans, the French, the British, everybody angry at us. And frankly, we're looking at a repeat performance here. The G20 Summit will include a meeting between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, along with talks with all of our major allies in NATO, an organization Donald Trump questions the existence of. As of the recording of this program, Donald Trump has already given a major speech in Poland, in which he used a lot of vaguely apocalyptic rhetoric, but also managed to include Poland in a newly expanded definition of quote-unquote the West. Now, I believe in the West, I like the West, and I think that if someone like Ronald Reagan or George Herbert Walker Bush had given this speech, it would have come off pretty well. Unfortunately, when Donald Trump talks about the West, he very clearly doesn't mean countries that have democracy and a liberal economic policy. He means countries with a lot of white people and not a lot of immigration to the United States of America. It's upsetting. The Western world is important. It is the grand goal of all of existence as far as I am concerned. Liberal, democratic capitalism. Liberal in the sense that we believe in civil rights and civil liberties. Democratic in that the people are sovereign. They are the ones with the power. And capitalist in that we're not godless, disgusting communists. This is a civilization worth defending, but it's not a civilization of people, it's a civilization of ideas. People are unimportant. Ideas are important. But you know what? All that's just window dressing. It's not even the part of Trump's foreign policy I'm angriest about this week. You see, North Korea, over this week, tested an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile. The day after North Korea tested an ICBM, Donald Trump spent the day playing golf. 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 The stumbly-bumbly ridiculousness that is Donald Trump is about to run into one of the most difficult foreign policy conundrums the United States of America has ever faced. We've been trying to figure out a way to deal with the Kim regime since the 1950s. If you have any good thoughts on the situation, write into the State Department. You can't do much worse than we've already done thus far. North Korea is determined to get nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons that are capable of striking the United States of America, and that makes perfect logical sense from their perspective. Nuclear weapons are the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card, because once you have them, it makes it almost impossible for anyone else to attack you. This is actually a major promoter of peace, as horrifying as that sounds. The United States of America and Russia stared at each other angrily for 44 years in the Cold War. The reason that the United States of America and Russia never came to actual blows is the threat of mutually assured destruction. The death of every man, woman, and child living on planet Earth in atomic fire. America would have loved to nuke Moscow and St. Petersburg, and the Russians would have loved to destroy me and my family in Manhattan, and, I suppose, a bunch of cars on the L.A. freeway. Nuclear weapons are the ultimate deterrence. If you've got nuclear weapons, people think once, twice, a third time, a fourth time, they go to bed, they think five, six, seven, eight more times after that, they then spend another month thinking a couple hundred more times, before they think about attacking you. 
which is why the Kim regime wants them. Look at Ukraine for a second. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine and Belarus and all sorts of other smaller Soviet imperial satellite states got their independence. Teeny tiny itty bitty problem. Some of those countries still had a huge number of atomic weapons in them. The United States of America and Russia didn't want these weapons spreading. So in 1994, the United States, Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, the United Kingdom, we signed a little agreement in Budapest saying that if Ukraine and these other Soviet satellite states gave up their nukes, America, Russia, the UK, we would promise no one would ever attack them. Fast forward a little while. And Russia has invaded the Ukraine. They've seized the Crimea. Their troops are marching through eastern Ukraine even as I speak. Something tells me that the Russians wouldn't be in Ukraine if the Ukrainians still had nuclear weapons. The Kim regime wants nuclear weapons to prevent an invasion. The same way that Saddam Hussein wanted chemical weapons because he somehow thought it would stop America from invading him. Mistake. Dumb idea. But there's a certain logic behind it. And you know what? In the hands of rational actors, mutually assured destruction works. It prevents anyone from launching a major war against other people with nuclear weapons. And if you're allied with a nuclear state that promises to defend you, it works there too. It works with rational actors. Which brings us to the Kims, the leaders of North Korea. Just because the Kims have a rational, understandable reason for wanting nuclear weapons doesn't mean that they are rational actors themselves. We should be afraid of the Kims, because they're nuts. Kim Jong-un is a loony person. He's a nutter butter. He's crazy. He could destroy Pyongyang. He could destroy Seoul. He could destroy Tokyo, essentially on a whim. And with an ICBM, he could strike uh, Hawaii. Or Alaska. If he builds a slightly better missile, maybe the west coast of the United States. Better missile still? The Midwest. Better missile still? Maybe, maybe. He finally does what his family's been promising to do for ages and destroys New York City. Which would be very upsetting because I live here. And so does my barber. And I don't want to have to find a new person to cut my hair. This North Korean situation is a no-win scenario. Literally every president of the United States of America since the Korean War has tried to deal with this and have failed. And things have only gotten worse since the end of the Cold War. Without a communist-allied Russia directly above North Korea, they've gotten even more unpredictable. The Kim regime was dependent on Russian aid. They're communists. This means that they can't grow enough food to feed their own people, let alone provide consumer goods. North Korea's economy is 128th the size of South Korea's. Communism, like having a dog in a studio apartment or going on a juice cleanse, is an idea that only really works on paper, not in reality. North Korea has essentially used its military belligerence to keep the foreign aid flowing in. Every once in a while, they'll reach an agreement with America and China and Russia to stop being such enormous human butts in return for foreign aid, for food, for trade opportunities. North Korea is, in essence, a welfare state, except the welfare comes from foreign governments who really, really don't want them to restart the Korean War. 
This has the unfortunate side effect of encouraging North Korea to continue being the aforementioned living human butts. So, what do we do as a country? Do we calmly wait them out, as Obama tried to do? Do we engage in some subtle diplomacy, like Bill Clinton tried to do? Do we threaten them, like George W. Bush tried to do? Unfortunately, none of those are really on the table, because to have any of them, you need a competent president of the United States of America who actually knows what the hell they're talking about. Donald Trump's national security team is literally briefing him with one-paragraph-long memos, because anything longer than that doesn't hold his attention. President Trump ran on a platform of essentially bombing the crap out of North Korea, saying he could deal with this problem, no, it's gonna be easy. And then he met with the premier of China. And after ten minutes, he decided that maybe things were more complicated than he knew. Maybe he needed to take a step back, reevaluate. And then something shiny caught his eye, and he changed positions again, saying that he was going to plan some, and this is a direct quote, some pretty savage things, unquote, for the North Koreans. Uh, we're doomed. We're all screwed. <laughs> a diplomatic solution won't work because our State Department essentially doesn't exist. About a third of it hasn't been appointed yet. That's great. A military option either involves a nuclear first strike, which would turn America into a war criminal, or sitting back and allowing the North Koreans to nuke both South Korea and Japan. Or, and amazingly enough, this might be the worst case scenario, the North Korean regime simply crumbles from within and without someone like George Herbert Walker Bush, who brilliantly managed the decline of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War, we have a regime that falls apart, a bunch of generals grab nuclear weapons and decide to sell them to some terrorists. Yay. Well, that was fun to talk about. Tell you what, let's move on to some good news. It was the 4th of July this week. I love the 4th of July. It's a charming holiday in which Americans get together and stuff their faces, which is essentially every American holiday, but this time with hot dogs. Never underestimate the power of a good hot dog. This year I got to watch the Macy's Fireworks Spectacular from the apartment of a friend that was literally a block away from the waterfront where the event was held. Fireworks are wonderful. Hot dogs are wonderful. Cookouts are wonderful. Uh, Macy's is acceptable. It was a, a wonderful holiday altogether. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes about American patriotism from the uh, writer Irma Bombeck. And I'm going to read you this quote in full because I like it so much. She said, quote, You have to love a nation that celebrates its independence every July 4th, not with a parade of guns, tanks, and soldiers who file by the White House in a show of strength and muscle, but with family picnics where kids throw frisbees, the potato salad gets iffy, and the flies die from happiness. You may have overeaten, but it is patriotism. What Irma says there is a key to understanding the American character. Do we have the most powerful military on earth? You bet. But the center of American life will never be its military or its government on any level. It will be the American people gathered together, stuffing themselves full of delectable meats, and setting off small amounts of TNT filled with glitter because we can. That's the America I love. 
Hey, that means it's time for predictions. Let's talk about how you look smart next week. Here's the story nobody's talking about, but they will be talking about in the future, and that is the possibility of an enormous trade war. Donald Trump is a dramatic man. Maybe it comes from being in reality TV all those years, or maybe he's just an irritating little prima donna that someone needed to spank as a child. But dear dumb Donnie is going to need some sort of uh, major event to redirect attention back to him instead of on the European leaders that he's been meeting with. So like many pundits, I assume Donald Trump is going to announce some sort of enormous trade tariff that will severely damage the American economy and send us into a recession because Donald Trump doesn't actually understand how the economy works because he's a real estate guy. I really need to start doing the good news last. I'm always ending on a down note. Oh well. That's all for this week in Republican in Exile. A special thanks to my producer Jonathan and to Acast, making good stories great. If you want to contact us, we are riepodcast at gmail.com, riepodcast on Twitter, Republican and Exile on Facebook. If you've got comments, questions, concerns, queries, send them to me. Send me your madness, and I will respond with madness of my own. Uh, that ends it for us. Hey, do your best this week not to die. Atomic bomb.